The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. It is an honor to uh, share this moment with you. Happy to consider God's Word with you. Our text for today is going to be Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 13. Uh, we're almost all the way through Jesus' addresses to those seven churches throughout Asia Minor, well, which speak to all of his people. So again, it's Revelation 3, 7 to 13. That's Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Let's hear the word of our Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Uh, we're so thankful that you are constantly communicating to us by your word, through your Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we take this moment now to consider your word, to hear your word, we ask you for help, Lord. We confess our sin, our need for you. We look to Jesus Christ to make us right with you according to what he has done. Uh, we pray the Holy Spirit would open our eyes, soften our hearts, help us understand what you have to say, and please write it on our hearts that we may believe you, be faithful to you, and conquer in your name. Lord, please help me as I teach this passage. Help me to teach it faithfully clearly, and we pray, Lord, that your word would not go out in vain, but that you would have your way, that your will would be done in all who hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if this will resonate with you. Uh, here's uh, an experience for me. I think that for many of us, Growing up in, as Christians in America has kind of downloaded in us the idea that we can and should change the world. You ever feel that? We've got to change the world. Some of us went to college and we heard about how we were going to be difference makers and world changers. And before long, it felt like all we were changing was a bunch of diapers. Some of us are old enough now to realize we have a hard enough time changing ourselves. Think of those persistent bad habits and character flaws. It feels a little silly to think we've done anything at all like change the world. Even as we read the Bible, we see that the best and most faithful work, sometimes at first glance, seems to have no major impact. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. He lived and proclaimed God's word faithfully for decades to the nation of Judah. And what happened? Nearly no one listened. Maybe the only difference Jeremiah's preaching made to that nation was to increase their judgment. 
And it ended up they were exiled to Babylon. Did Jeremiah change his world? We remember to some extent the world is going to do what it's going to do. Maybe we can't change it. Then there's the church we're thinking of this morning, the church in Philadelphia. Jesus says to them, I know you and I know that you have but little power. Jesus says, I know you. I know you're small. I know you're not that influential in your city or in your culture. And so I just wonder about how you're feeling about this theme this morning. Are you carrying the burden, feeling like it's up to you to change the world, to change the trend of where our nation or our culture is going? Maybe you're feeling like things are out of control and you can't change anything. Maybe you even feel like a complete victim to your situation. And it seems to you there's nothing you can do about anything. So I guess I want to raise this question with you. What do we do when we want to be faithful but we feel powerless? What do we do when we want to be faithful but we feel powerless and I think Jesus has something to say to exactly that situation from our text this morning in his address to the church in Philadelphia. Before we get into the text, let's remember that sevenfold pattern Jesus loves to use uh, in these addresses to these churches. Number one, we remember each address starts with a declaration of who Jesus is. That's always the most important thing, is to see who Jesus is, to remember him, to trust him. So we see the declaration of who he is. Second, all churches hear about the knowledge of Jesus. He tells every church, I know, I know you, I know your situation. Third, most churches get some encouragement from Jesus. He loves to encourage his people for ways they are faithful, and that's especially true in the text this morning. Fourth, most churches get a rebuke from Jesus, something he is calling them to change. Uh, but not our church today. There's no rebuke. Fifth, all churches receive a calling from Jesus. It's kind of his exhortation. This is what I want you to do to follow me. Sixth, most churches get a consequence from Jesus. That's connected to that rebuke. When churches won't listen to the rebuke, a consequence will come. There's no consequence in our text today. It's mostly encouragement. Number seven, all churches receive a promise from Jesus. There's a reward for following him. There's a reward for those who conquer. It's going to be infinitely worth it. So the declaration, the knowledge, the encouragement, the rebuke, the calling, the consequence, the promise. That's the framework we're using. A little bit of background before we hit the text about the city of Philadelphia. In AD 17, historians tell us the city experienced a devastating earthquake. Uh, it wrecked the city. And so this population knew what it was like to have everything come down around them with no power to do anything about it. As a result, the city had to rely on Rome for rebuilding, and Rome came through for them. And so uh, in, in, uh, as a result of that, the city erected this huge monument to the emperor Tiberius. I raise that just so that we remember a major theme that has been in play for all of these cities. These major cities of Asia Minor tended to be devoted to emperor worship. And this caused massive problems and pressure for Christians. Uh, if you wanted to participate in your business guild, if you wanted to have a place in society, you had to participate in this idolatrous worship. And to the extent that you wouldn't, many times there were consequences. There was a price to pay. Moreover, the Christians in this city are experiencing some of the same challenges that we saw from in those in Smyrna. There was a large, wealthy, prominent Jewish community in the city of Philadelphia. And historians tell us the religious Jews were exempt from emperor worship, whereas Christians weren't. We also remember that in the late first century, religious Jews were especially hostile to Christians. They despised the claim that the crucified Jesus was the promised Messiah and the only way to be right with God. And so we are told religious Jews would sometimes highlight to government authorities that the Christians would not join in emperor worship. And as a result, the Christians would pay a severe political and economic price. 
So I remind us of this just to remember life was really hard for this small, insignificant group of people in Philadelphia. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said they had but little power. They were despised, demeaned, often persecuted, and there was basically nothing they could do about it. So in that context, when God's faithful people feel powerless, that's where we want to hear what Jesus has to say. Now we'll get to the declaration. Look at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. When it comes to these uh, messages to the churches in Asia Minor, this declaration of who Jesus is is a bit different from all the others. Most of the others explicitly look back to that vision of Jesus in chapter 1. This declaration from Jesus goes straight back into deep themes from the Old Testament. You'll notice right away, Jesus calls himself the Holy One. That's really quite amazing. In the Old Testament, there's only one who can be called the Holy One. And who's that? And it's Yahweh, the Creator God, who created the universe by his word. He alone is set apart from creation, worthy of worship, praise, devotion. He is God. So for Jesus to say, I am the Holy One, is a massive and amazing claim. Jesus is telling us he's not just another good teacher. He's not just another religious leader. He is far more than just a prophet. He is the eternal Son of God who is one with the Father. He is the Holy One, worthy of worship and devotion. And this is a theme that amazingly is meant to be incredibly encouraging for his faithful people who feel powerless. Because as the Holy One, Jesus is the one who always comes through for his people. I think there's an allusion here to Isaiah 12, verses 2 to 6. Listen to what the prophet says in Isaiah 12, verse 2. Behold, he says, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Look at verse 6. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is who? The Holy One of Israel. So when you think of the context of Isaiah and all the problems and sin Israel was going through and the difficulty there was for the remnant, those who believed. Then you think of the exile coming and being shipped off to Babylon and how powerless and hopeless they would feel. The great joy, the reason for shouting, for singing, the power for endurance is to know that great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. So Jesus is saying, I see you and I know you're powerless. But I am with you, and I am powerful. You can rely on me. The second thing Jesus says here is he's the true one. And I think the emphasis here is on the idea that he is the real thing. He's authentic. He's legitimate. He's better than advertised. He's not some fake thing that only looks good on the outside but doesn't follow through or doesn't come through. No, Jesus is the real thing. Uh, so, many, so many times in Scripture we're told that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and that no one who looks to Christ will be put to shame. He comes through. He finishes the deal. He keeps his promises. Of course, when Jesus says, I am the true one, we can't help but think of John 14, 6. I, Jesus says, am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Of course, we do think of the exclusivity here of Christ. He's the only way. There's no way apart from him. He is the truth. To deny him is to be in the lie. He is the life. The only way to have abundant life with the Father in salvation is through Christ. So there is an exclusivity here. But there's also a promise. If you look to Jesus, he is the way. 
You'll make it. You're on the way. If you look to Jesus, you know the truth. It will come through for you. It's solid ground for your feet. If you know Jesus, he is the life. You will have abundant life in him for all eternity. Again, Jesus' message to this powerless people is you might not have anything else except for me, but if you have me, you have everything. You can rely on me. I will come through for you as the true one. He is powerful to come through for his people. You see, another way Jesus is powerful for his people, again, verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The key has the idea in it, right, of powerful authority. If the door's locked and you don't have the key, you can't get in. But Jesus says, I have the key. The key of David. If I open it, it's open. If I shut it, it's shut. Jesus is saying, I'm the, I'm the muscle here. I'm the powerful one here. I'm the one who opens and shuts doors. So what does it mean that it's the key of David? Well, if you read Isaiah 22, this is a fulfillment of that passage, and it basically means this. Jesus is, compl- is completely in control of God's kingdom. He's, contr- he's in control of who is saved or not. Um, He's in control of our situation. Uh, Think of Revelation 1, 17 to 18. Let's remember that. Look what Jesus says, first of all. Fear not. Those are beautiful words, aren't they? When we feel powerless and out of control, we're afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? I'm the first and the last. (laughs) I'm sovereign. I'm eternal. It's all in my hands. Boy, that's power. Then, verse 18, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Talk about power. Jesus has defeated sin and death. He has risen from the dead. One day he's going to return and reorder the world. We can't even really fathom that kind of power, divine power to save, divine power to judge. And so Jesus says to his people, don't be afraid. Even in your situation of powerlessness, you have me and I have all power. He opens, it's open. He shuts, it's shut. No one can outmuscle him and therefore his people who belong to him do not need to be afraid, even in the context of their own weakness and powerlessness. So that's the declaration. Jesus as the eternal son of God, as the promised king, as the Messiah, he's the one with all the power. Now we get to Jesus' knowledge. Verse eight, Jesus says to his church, I know your works. And I think it's so precious here, Jesus' knowledge of them, their society despises them. Culturally, they're not important. Uh, They're unknown. They're unvalued. Jesus says, you might be forgotten by them, but not by me. I know you. I see you. Um, You're in my hand. Then he gets to the encouragement, verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. It's such a beautiful thing, isn't it, to see Jesus address a church where there's no rebuke. There's not one place where he goes, I have this against you. He just says, you're faithful. You're faithful. And it's, it's also surprising to see that one example of a faithful church with no rebuke is the smallest church. It's the most powerless church. It's the least culturally influential church. It's the church that looks like a group of nobodies. And that's the church Jesus looks at and says, you're faithful. You're faithful. I know your works. You're faithful. And there's two kind of ingredients here to faithfulness that Jesus uses to summarize faithfulness. Did you see that at the end of verse 8? This is so important. We want to see this. We want to know what it means 
to be faithful. First thing Jesus says is, you have kept my word. What a powerful, all-encompassing theme. You have kept my word. Friends, how important is the Bible? How important is the Bible? I mean, we're not Bible worshipers. The Bible is meant to take us to the person of Christ, right? The Bible is meant to take us to the presence, the knowledge of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our God. And yet our God continually insists that the only way to know him is to know him through his word. In fact, his word is nearly an extension of himself. This word is inspired by God. And the way to be faithful to God is to be faithful to his word. His word is the only way we make sure we're not inventing a new God. And to to know his word, to humble ourselves before his word, to not be ashamed of what his word says, to want to keep his word, that's what faithfulness means. We want to keep his word. So as we see Jesus' encouragement to this church, we just need to ask ourselves, how are we doing at keeping his word? Do you have a hunger for his word? Are you in his word? Are you studying his word? Do you have humility before his word? Do you go wanting to listen with a posture of humility that says, teach me, show me, Do you have confidence in his word? Are you willing to believe it and speak it and stand for it even when your culture hates it? And do you desire to be faithful to his word in how you live? This is this first building block of faithfulness for a church that gets no rebuke. It's a church that keeps his word. Jesus loves this. There's a second aspect to faithfulness at the end of verse eight. He says to them, you have not denied my name. You've not denied my name. What does that mean? Well, I'm reminded that nearly every religious group anywhere loves to use the name of Jesus. Uh, You can look at so many different religions. They're happy to say Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus had an enlightened consciousness. Um, Nearly everybody likes to use the name of Jesus, but many of them, most of them, all of them except Christians, are denying his name. Now, why would I say this? Here's why. The name of Jesus is about clarity on who he is and what he has done clarity on who he is and what he has done. And so, you know, this church in Philadelphia, they would want to say, Jesus is Lord. And that means Caesar is not. They would want to say, Jesus is the Messiah. And that powerful community of religious Jews would say, no, he's not. And so they'd be pressured to deny his name. Is he Lord or not? Is he the Messiah or not? And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what do you believe about Jesus? If you think, oh, he's a good teacher and I take advice from him sometimes, you might be denying his name. To not deny his name, to to be loyal to him, is to receive the reality from his word that Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's the co-creator. He upholds all things by the word of his power. One day he'll return to judge all people. He holds the keys, as we saw, of death, of life. The second thing we must believe in order to not deny his name is that he's the promised king who became human and fulfilled all of God's promises. And this leads us to Remember to emphasize and trust what Jesus has done. He alone lived the perfect life, pleasing to the Father. He died for the sins of his people as a substitutionary atonement 
on the cross. His work was vindicated in his literal, physical resurrection from the dead. To not deny his name is to proclaim that faith in him is the only way to be saved. So to not deny the name of Jesus is to emphasize and cling to the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done. We proclaim the reality of sin, that all have sinned. We proclaim the reality that the only way to be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we proclaim the reality that those who believe that and trust that will have new hearts to love and serve Christ. That's what this church has done. He says, you're faithful. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You've remained loyal to the gospel truth, Jesus says, of who I am and what I have done. Look now at Jesus' promises to this church in light of how they keep his word and remain loyal to who he is. Verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one has able to shut, which no one is able to shut. So Jesus has said, I know you have little power. You aren't politically or economically or socially influential. And I know you can't change your world. But I, Jesus says, will open the door for you. I have opened the door for you. My strength opens the door that no one can shut. I want to give you three ways Jesus is powerful to open the door for his people from the context of Revelation. Number one, Jesus has opened the door for his people to be freed from their sins. He's opened the door for his people to be freed from their sins. And before we go into that, I just want to ask you, is that impressive to you? Are you kind of like, yeah, I heard that before. Listen, do you realize how incredible this is, that you could be freed from your sins? I mean, you were born from the womb with an inclination to deny God, suppress the truth about God, not love him, not be humble before him, not fellowship with him, not trust in him, but want to be self-ruled. You were born prideful. And this is from the heart Ephesians 2 says, we're by nature children of wrath. We're hostile to God. What on earth could free you from the penalty of your sin that you deserve and the power of your sin that is shown in what you love? Revelation 1, 5 to 6. Look what Jesus says, or look what John says. To him who loves us and has what? Freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is a door open to God's people which cannot be shut to be saved from your sins. You're saved from the penalty of your sin. Jesus died for your sins. In him, your guilt and shame are gone. You are forgiven. We're freed from the power of our sins. We're made a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. We have new hearts to love him and his ways. Jesus has opened the door to his kingdom to free us from our sins. That's a beautiful thing. Second, the open door. Jesus not only says, I've opened the door uh, to you to be included into my kingdom. He also says, I've opened the door to use you to grow my kingdom. We see this in verse 9. Look at verse 9. This is tricky. Jesus says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Strange language, isn't it? What is he saying? Well, let's just walk through it. First of all, Jesus calls the community of religious Jews that have rejected Christianity a synagogue of Satan. 
and he calls them liars. In what way are they liars? They say they're Jews and are not. What does this mean? Is this people uh, lying about their ethnicity? No, in fact, it has very little to do with ethnicity. There's another way to use the word Jew in the New Testament. And the way to use that word is to mean part of God's people. Those who received God's grace, his blessings, those who trust him, those who believe him. That's what it means to be a true Jew. It's, it's about the heart. Read about this in Romans 2. And so when Jesus says this group of religious Jews is a synagogue of Satan, this is what he's referring to. This is a group of people who have denied Jesus as their promised Messiah. This is a group of people who would not submit to what God had done to save them. This is a group of people who have twisted God's law by asserting they can keep it on their own and establish their own righteousness. And like all who believe those things, no matter their ethnicity, they're deceived by Satan. And therefore they accuse like Satan. That's what the word Satan means, accuser in persecuting the church. They would say, you're outsiders. You don't belong. We're the true people of God. And in that, they were lying. Why? Because they've rejected Jesus Christ. But here's what's amazing. Jesus promises this little powerless church that that group of people persecuting them will soon come and bow down before them because they realize that Jesus loves them. What does that mean? Well, this is an amazing promise, um, and it's an allusion to Isaiah 45, 14. I think we need to see that. Look at Isaiah 45, 14. This is what the prophet said. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of statue, stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. So in Isaiah, this is a picture of God's promise to Abraham coming to pass. Remember, God said to Abraham, I will bless you, and in you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because through you, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bring all peoples of the earth to myself. So in Isaiah 45, this is a picture of the Gentile nations coming to the people of Israel in humility to follow them, to plead with them because they want to know the real God. This is a picture of conversion now look at the way this is being used in Revelation. So in Isaiah, it's the Gentiles coming to believing Israel so that they could know the true God. But in Revelation, in Philadelphia, ironically, surprisingly, the true people of God is no longer ethnic Israel because they've rejected Christ. The true people of God is this powerless little group of Gentiles who belong to God, why? Because they've trusted Jesus. And here's what Jesus is saying to them. Because you have been faithful to my word and have not denied my name, I'm going to open the door so that your very persecutors who have denied you and shamed you, some of them will come to you in humility because they want to know Christ as their Savior. This is the promise of fruitful evangelism that brings conversions from the enemies who were bringing the persecution. That's amazing. That's so powerful. And this is the open door. Uh, a lot of times the New Testament uses this language to mean 
a vehicle for sharing the gospel fruitfully. Colossians 4.3, listen to what Paul said. Colossians 4.3, Paul said at the same time, pray for us that God may, what? Open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Here's what's amazing. Jesus is saying to this marginalized church in Philadelphia, as you keep my word and are loyal to who I am, in view of your persecutors, I will use that to save them. Friends, being faithful to God's word and being loyal to who Jesus is is going to stand out. And it's going to make a difference in our relationships. Look at Luke 6.28. This is one thing Jesus calls for in his people. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We want to check our Christian pulse here. How do you and I tend to respond to those who curse us? Think of what tends to belch out. How do we tend to respond to those who abuse us? Jesus says, those who know the gospel will be inclined in this way. Let's bless them. Let's pray for them. You know, our times are so polemical right now. There's so much enmity. It's so easy to be bitter at people we disagree with. It's so easy to demonize other people. And it's easy then for Christians to forget that we need to be marked by love for those who disagree with us. And we need to never forget that sometimes the most fruitful places to share the gospel are with those who hate us the most. But that's only true if we live in Christ's love towards them. And amazingly, this church in Philadelphia has been the kind of people where their persecutors are going to be so amazed by how they've lived, they're going to come to them in humility to be converted. Are we that kind of people? Are we the kind of people who can stand for truth without wavering, keeping God's word, not denying Christ's name, while at the same time doing it in such a winsome way that those who are cruelest to us see a difference and some of them go, tell me about Jesus who's made you like this. That's the open door here that Jesus is opening for this church. Those who are so powerless are going to be so influential because they were so faithful. Faithful. Third way, Jesus opens the door for them. Look at verse 10. The first one was he's opened the door to them, for them to belong in his kingdom, to be freed from the penalty and the power of their sin. The second door, he's opened the door for him to grow his kingdom through them, even to those who have persecuted them. Third way, he opens the door. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, what does this mean? The hour of trial. Well, it's one hour. How are we supposed to read that? Uh, it's best to read Revelation symbolically. It's not like you can start a stopwatch, 60 minutes, trial over. No, but it does mean it's limited that God is in control and he's using this hour of difficulty on the world for a reason. Second, in this case, the hour is coming on the whole world. So this is a tribulation and a difficulty everyone somehow is going to taste, going to experience. It's a time of crisis in the world. And it's going to test those who dwell on the earth. In Revelation, earth dwellers are those who are unbelievers. So it tests unbelievers this hour of trial so that they might perhaps look to God and repent. It shakes their apple cart so they'll ask bigger questions. And Jesus says he will keep his people from it. So now we have a big question to ask. What does that mean? 
Some would say this means that God pulls his people out of difficult times to keep them in places of prosperity and comfort. Um, do you think that's the message of the New Testament? We could quote verse after verse. The one that comes to my mind is when Jesus says, in this world you will have, anybody remember? Trouble. Or in John 17, the, the same kind of uh, Greek grammar in a verse there says, Jesus says, Father, I, don't, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. There's a difference there, isn't it? So I think the New Testament clear. I think Revelation's clear. This is not the idea that Jesus vacuums his people out before hard times come. No, John says, remember, he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He says, I'm your partner in tribulation. So keeping his people from the hour of trial does not mean they never experience difficulty. Let me give you one, one more example from the New Testament, Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35. I think the, it's hitting on the same theme here, Paul, in Romans 8. Look at Romans 8.35. Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Just pause there. We're talking about the difficulty of tribulation or, or the crisis of hard times. Is that going to cause us to lose our faith? Is Jesus going to abandon us there in hard times? That's the question. Verse Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's clear here, isn't it? Sometimes, often, Christians will face what? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, even martyrdom. That's not abnormal in the history of the church. So this doesn't mean that Jesus pulls us out of every difficulty. That's not what it says that's not what it means when he says he'll keep us from it. This is what it means. Look at Romans 8.38. I'm sure neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor, present, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What this means is that even in the hour of trial, even in difficult times, even in the times of tribulation, Jesus will be so sufficient for his people that he provides them with everything they need so that their hearts still beat for him. And they are able to conquer and overcome and be faithful to him through it, no matter the cost, to the end. Jesus is promising, I will be enough for you. Nothing can separate you from my love. Jesus has opened the door for his people to his eternal love. And there's not a thing in the world, there's not a person on earth that can shut that door. Do you see how powerful Jesus is for his powerless people? He's opened the kingdom to us to belong to him. He opens the door for the kingdom to grow through us, and he certainly will keep us to the end. And that open door is based on his strength and his authority. We are safe in his hand. That's good news for a powerless people. Well, there's no rebuke in this text, so immediately we get to the calling in verse 11. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. First thing to see, he's coming soon. And I think there's two ways we can understand this. Number one, Jesus is going to come to the church in Philadelphia by his spirit to give them exactly what they need to endure faithfully for him. He walks among his people. He walks among his lampstands. He's here. He comes to give us what we need by his word, by his spirit. And of course, ultimately, he will physically, literally, come again. He will, and he's coming soon. So what's his call to this church? 
hold fast to what you have. You know, basically, this just means keep going. Keep going so that no one may seize your crown. Isn't it great? It's the idea they already have a crown. It's already there. There's already a crown with your name on it. There's already a reward that belongs to you because you belong to him. So just keep going. And so here we have, I think, the theme of this text. What do we do when we feel powerless? Here's the answer. We double down on faithfulness because we have the one who's powerful. What do we do when we feel powerless? Hold fast to what you have. Double down on faithfulness. Keep his word. Be loyal to who he is, knowing that even though we are powerless, he is powerful. And when he opens the door for us, nobody can shut it. We're safe in him. There's no consequence for this church, no rebuke, no consequence. So we get straight to the promise. Verse 12. To the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Remember, to conquer means to trust in, live for Jesus according to his word, no matter the cost, all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Run the race. Your finish line is either you dying or Jesus coming back. To conquer is to make it, to be faithful to the end, no matter the cost. And to the one who conquers, here's the promise. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I think this is probably an allusion to 1 Kings, verse 7. And there you get all this time spent on how Solomon, the son of David, placed these massive, glorious pillars in the temple. Of course, we know Jesus is the ultimate son of David, and the temple is his church. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you, you you little church with no strength, experiencing earthquakes, things seem out of your control. I am going to plant you right, right in front of my face, right in the center of my presence forever, and you'll never leave. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of uh, permanence, of safety, that you would be right there in the presence of God forever, as strong as a pillar, safe forever. And the idea of this name, did you see all the names written on us? The name of his God, the name of his city, the new Jerusalem, his own new name. What does it mean? Well, it gives the sense of intimate belonging, intimate belonging, that you are welcomed, that you are celebrated, that you are vindicated, that you are loved because the name of Jesus that you have not denied is written on you. Remember the picture of baptism? It's the idea of being immersed in Christ, that you died with him by faith, that you rose with him by faith, that you belong to him. One of the greatest themes of the New Testament, we're always being told that believers in Christ are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. You have the spirit of Christ. Your father is the father of Christ. It's written on you, tattooed on your heart. You are intimately welcome. You are intimately known. That's what even the weakest of us who trust in Jesus have in Jesus. What a promise that even as we are powerless, he is powerful for us. And this little church that has been demeaned and despised is going to be planted like a grand pillar with his name written on them. Permanently placed in the presence of God forever. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the Spirit saying from this passage? When we feel powerless, let's focus on what? 
faithfulness. Faithfulness, because even when we are powerless, he is powerful. Faithfulness means keeping his word, being faithful to his name. As we do so, we know he is powerful to open doors. He's included us in his kingdom. He will grow his kingdom through us, and he will keep us for himself forever. Church, you might feel powerless. You might feel small. You might feel like you haven't really been changing the world. But if you're faithful, you'll be influential because Jesus is in you and with you. Let's look to him and remember how powerful he is. And let's be faithful. He'll open the doors. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Lord, we wanna be faithful. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you that is listening right now. They would see uh, how grand you are, how ultimate you are, Lord Jesus eternal God who became flesh, became human to save us from our sin, that you're the one who died on the cross for us and rose from the dead, and in you and you alone can we be saved. And I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, they trust in you right now. They trust in you, repent of their sin, and look to you to be their Savior, their Lord. Lord, for those of us who do know you, um, sometimes we feel so powerless, we wonder if anything we're doing makes any difference. Sometimes we get so beat up, we don't do anything anymore, we give up. Lord, give us the strength to double down on being faithful. Help us to keep your word, to know it, to believe it, to proclaim it, um, to be faithful to it. Lord, help us not to deny your name. Help us to be loyal to who you are and what you have done. Lord, as we do so, let us look to you, the powerful one, the one who opens the door of our salvation, the one who opens the door to use us in this world for your glory. Please do that more and more. We look to your power and not to ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us, everyone. It's good to be with you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.